0: Thanks, Tony, for reading today. Well, as I was reading myself this week in preparation for uh, this new series we're starting in the Gospel of Mark, uh, I, I was struck by one pastor's encouragement to his congregation, congregation which I, I want to pass on as well today to you. Uh, and he, he, he asked this question of his congregation. When you come to study of a new, uh, new book of the Bible, maybe starting a new series at church or on your own, do you ask yourself the question, how am I going to be changed by this book? How am I going to be transformed by this book? How does God want to use the Gospel of Mark to shape me, to shape you, to change you? What does He want to do? And a lot of us are shaped by all kinds of things in our life. By many things in our life. Shaped by our own opinions, our own thoughts, our own outside, um, outside cultural influences. And we end up then, in turn, shaping the Word of God with those. We shape God's Word. Here's the question. Does it shape us or do we shape it as we come to this new book of Mark? Is it to shape us as, as the norm of, of all norms? So jot that down at the top of your notes as we start today. I want you to jot this question down: What will this book do to me? Write it down. Take a minute. There's pens, uh, hopefully, in the chair back. What will this book, the Gospel of Mark, do to me? With a little question mark there. I want us to think about that all the way through this book. What is? Why is Mark written it? What is Jesus doing? What is he saying? And how does he want to transform me? And not just us as individuals, but what does he want to do to Bethany Church as a whole too? That's where we're headed. Well, Mark doesn't waste any time in introducing us to Jesus as the central character, the centerpiece of this book and his commissioning and his mission we're going to look at today. This morning, we're going to join Mark really as almost fellow travelers. I want us to think that way as well. Fellow companions of Jesus and his disciples, as we travel along, we're going to hit the ground just running today. Directly running into the action of God breaking in to time and space. God busting in to earth. To time and space in real time. So let's not waste any time either. If you've got your outline, grab it. Have it in front of you. Have it open. There's some fill-ins there for you. Have your Bible open to Mark chapter 1 for our text today as we take a look and first do a quick introduction. Anytime you come to a new book, it's good to know who wrote it, what's it about, why is it in the Bible. We're going to do that. A quick introduction. Well, here's the first thing. Who's our author? The author of the Gospel of Mark is? Hey, you guys got it. All right, next point. No, just kidding. The Gospel, yes, it was written by Mark. But who is this Mark? He's also known as John Mark, just to make things really confusing on us. Uh, Mark and then another apostle's name. Wait a minute. John Mark? Who is this guy? John Mark. Uh, He's also known that way in Acts. It's the oldest of the Gospels. The oldest of the Gospels, which are the accounts of Jesus' life, possibly written, listen to this now, possibly written in A.D. 50s. That's early. Uh, so about probably 20 years after the resurrection uh, and Christ's life on earth. So people would still be alive when Mark wrote this gospel who'd seen the resurrected Christ. It's pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. And because it's the first gospel, Mark, Matthew and Luke now, Matthew and Luke use Mark uh, almost entirely entirely. To reproduce, They almost reproduce all of Mark in those two Gospels, uh, Matthew and Luke. You'll find it quoted almost directly there. So who was this guy? He was not one of the original 12 apostles. The easiest way to think of the Gospels and who were the apostles, bookended. Matthew, apostle. Mark, no. Uh, Luke, no. John, yes. The bookends are the apostles. Uh, but who are these guys in the middle? Uh, Mark was one of them. Mark uh, was a companion of Peter actually uh, his apostolic thor- authorities you think well why is this book in the bible then it wasn't written by one of the 12 he was a companion of Peter Peter loved Mark take a look at what he says in first peter she who is at babylon who is likewise chosen sends you greeting as so does mark he calls him my son even peter was really close with mark so much as to call him his son his own child And for all the action in Mark, we see Peter is present a lot. Peter's kind of there. It's almost kind of through Peter's eyes. And what's absolutely amazing is one of the early church fathers now, early church fathers, leaders in the early church, kind of gives us where this content of Mark comes from. And he attributes the content of Mark to Peter. Take a look at what he said. This was about 8140, this guy named Papias said, Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. For he had not heard the Lord, that's Mark, nor had he followed him. But later on, as I said, he followed Peter, who used to give teaching as necessity demanded. So Papias said that about AD 140. And what's interesting about Papias, he probably knew the Apostle John face to face. 8140, John was the oldest apostle. So think about the connections there we have from somebody outside the Bible now attributing the gospel of Mark to an apostle, the apostle Peter. It's incredible. Somebody anybody ever tells you, oh, the, the gospel or the Bible is just kind of a circle only attributing itself to be the word of God or from the apostles? No. This man's outside the Bible now saying, Mark passed on Peter's words. What you have here, Mark passed on Peter's stories to us his accounts of jesus christ are what we have here the gospel of mark mark's mom's house was also a meeting place in the early church as they met there and that's where peter uh it was peter i think went after he got out of prison and uh, the, the uh is it dorcas at the door he knocks and uh it, that was mark's mom's house and she just runs away and leaves peter at the door at the closed door it's kind of a funny story but he was also the cousin of barnabas remember paul and barnabas in the book of acts and he went with, that's the John, Mark, in Acts now, who went with Paul and Barnabas on missionary journey. Which means he was also the John Mark who caused division between Paul and Barnabas. The one that Paul said, he's not coming with us. And Barnabas said, well then, I'll take him with me. This is the John Mark. But he was later restored to Paul's good favor, we see in the book of Philippians. That's our author. That's who he is. His credibility comes from Peter. He was directly connected to the early church. So let's look at the setting then as we continue to go into this quick introduction here, the setting now. Mark wrote, as I said, in the 50s A.D., probably from Rome, and he was writing to encourage a Gentile now Christian audience who was going through trials and crisis in their life. He's writing to encourage them by pointing them to the life of Jesus. By holding up Jesus in front of them. As one who responded beautifully, perfectly, and wonderfully to his own crisis as well. He's holding Jesus up for them. This early Gentile church in Rome. Which points us to our themes. Mark is really fast-paced. It's a hit-the-ground-running kind of book. Really hard-hitting Gospel. It's the quickest of all the Gospels. The shortest too. As we go through it, you're going to see he uses this word immediately. You'll see it. It's all over. I think it's three times today in our passage. Immediately. 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 He uses it, I think, about 42 times in his Gospel out of the 50 that's used, I think, in the whole New Testament. That put in perspective a little bit. Mark is like, let's get down to business. Immediately. Immediately this happened. You'll hear that as we uh, jump into that. It's a, it's a hard-hitting, fast-paced book. You Remember those uh, action figures you used to pl- uh, grow with, uh, play, play with when you were growing up? It was kind of like some of you did, maybe. Maybe you know. <laughs> I did, okay, I, I admit it. Uh, G.I. Joe's, whatever it was that you had. Um, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is portrayed more like an action figure than anything else. He's just doing, he's doing all the time, uh, even more so than a teacher. Like you might see him in Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, this long, drawn out teaching. We don't have really any of that in Mark. He's fast. He's action-packed. Uh, action, uh, he's doing. He's living. He's not stagnant or static. You might say the Jesus of Mark is, he's dynamic. He's on the road, on the move. Which is why I want us to view ourselves as fellow travelers in this book because it's going to move. Fellow companions. As we come alongside Jesus, picture yourself there. Picture yourself amongst those crowds as the action happens and the miracles happen and the crowds press in and the people press in on Jesus and the enemies surround Him. All of this closing in and encircling this dynamic Messiah. I want us to be there. Well, because another theme is discipleship as well. And disciples follow, don't they? Disciples walk alongside and we're going to do that in this Gospel. Follow and walk alongside of Jesus. And finally, for themes, he's primarily portrayed, hear this now, he's pri- pri- primarily portrayed in this book as the suffering servant king. The suffering servant king. As we're going to see even in Mark's words, the central verse of the book being Mark 10.45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. It's the central theme, really, of the entire Gospel. Mark 10.45, this suffering Messiah, this servant Messiah who's also King. We're going to see that in our own passage today. So what's this book going to do to you if one of the central themes of this book is the center of it being a suffering messiah. A serving Messiah who acts in crisis. What it's going to do, I pray, make us more like him, make us more servant-hearted. Servants like him who don't fall apart, who don't become static or passive in, in crisis as we'll see him, whether that's a crisis of our culture or our, our nation, our town, your, your family, your own personal crisis, will act. We'll live out of faith as servants. I pray we'll become more servant-like and acting out of Christ's power, His victory, and His identity. That's what I hope this book will do to us. That's what I want to see the Holy Spirit apply to each and every one of us as individuals, but as a church too. We'll follow this servant king and become servants ourselves. So let's begin. Let's look then at these three pieces we've got today. His identity, his commissioning we're going to look at, and his mission. Those are really the three pieces. His identity, his commissioning, and his mission. By looking first this introduction. John the Baptist is the one who introduces us to Jesus. We get, we're going to get his identity. John the Baptist introduces us this really strange kind of character who likes to wear crazy clothes and eat grasshoppers. That's who he is. He's meant to stand out. Let's take a look at verse 1 though. The beginning, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is quite an introduction, isn't it? It is quite an introduction. Not just, hey, there's some guy or a long time ago in a galaxy far away. No, the, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning. The beginning of the Gospel. The beginning of the good news, Mark is saying. It's the beginning of something new is happening. Something radical, something new, something of the likes you've never seen before is starting here. What Mark really wants us to do, he wants us to think of creation. By using that word, the beginning, he wants us to think of creation now. Where God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all active and working. The Gospel of John does that as well, doesn't it? In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the beginning, Mark says. And by pointing us to creation, Mark wants us to begin to think that God the Trinity now, Father, Son, and Spirit, has always been working, always been active, always been dynamic. Working in creation as He did in the beginning. And now, too, in this new thing that's starting. In a minute, we're going to see the Trinity in action, aren't we? At Jesus' baptism. Did you catch that there? We're going to see that play out. From creation even to now, God is working as Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, the good news, verse 1 says... This beginning is about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. He comes flat out and says that it means He is the King. He's the Messiah, this one Jesus. He's the Anointed One. Christ. He will rule over and all of us as no one else has ruled. He'll restore Israel. He'll bring peace. This is the Messiah. The Christ. He will rescue us. This new beginning. Jesus Christ. And not only that, he says, but He is the Son of God. Pointing out this absolutely unique and unparalleled relationship that nobody else has. This Jesus, this Christ, is the Son of God. He's God's Son. He's basically telling us He's pre-existent, He's deity. He is God. When He says Son of God. Son of God. Well, Mark goes on, to begin to uh, unpack as um, John the Baptist comes into the picture here. And look at verses uh, 2 and 3 as, as these words that Mark quotes here. These words of Isaiah. Just in case we weren't sure who this Jesus is, Mark quotes Isaiah and says John the Baptist fulfills this prophecy. He's preparing the way of the Lord. He's going to level those roads as the Lord comes in. Here are the words. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. He's saying, this one's going to come. And it's John the Baptist. He quotes these Isaiah passages. He's going to come. and He's going to prepare the way. He's going to make these level roads so the Lord's going to come in. The way of the Lord. And he's talking about Jesus there. He's equating Jesus with the Lord, with God Almighty. And what this work John the Baptist is going to do, he's going to open the pathways for God. For God to work in Jesus Christ. Do you see how much? Do you see how much God packs in His Word in just a couple little verses there? He doesn't waste anything. We've got Jesus' identity. We know who He is. It's something new. It's a new beginning. And John's coming along. He's going to lay out these roads so that God can do a work, a new work. He packs so much. And directly claims there to this divinity of this Messiah. Messiah is God, Lord of all. And John now, John, he says, he's going to point you to Him. He's going to point you at Him, towards Him. That's His job. Mark's actually, in this passage right here, it says quoted from Isaiah, but what he's actually doing there. It's kind of fun. He's actually quoting from three different places. Exodus, Malachi, a minor prophet, and then Isaiah, which is probably the most relevant and best known, which is why he says Isaiah. But it's actually from Exodus, Malachi, and Isaiah there. He's packing a lot in there. I want to see if we can make it just incredibly clear in a summary. Here's what kind of these Isaiah passages are saying. A quote from Exodus. Okay, I've always had messengers angels before you in the wilderness, the place where God calls His people to repent. Malachi, who's a minor prophet, this messenger will clear the way for the one who's going to call you to repent. And then he quotes Isaiah, this major prophet, this voice is going to come who's going to cry out and pave the way for God to come and save you that's just a real kind of my own kind of summary of that but it's pretty interesting we got there that exodus that malachi and isaiah it's really saying like hey from the torah to the minor prophets to the major prophets they all center here and they all talk about them and john's going to point you there just in that quote that's what we see happening it's amazing and just in case you weren't sure mark says john's going to come along and wear some wacky clothing and eat some crazy food and some bugs, really just like Elijah, this other prophet who called you to repentance from the wilderness. John's out there kind of mirroring this other prophet who was out in the wilderness too, dressed funky, eating weird food, doing the same thing. A new thing was beginning. It's quite an introduction to Jesus quite an introduction who this gospel is about in just a few verses but i also love how john himself in his own character introduces us to jesus as well john is so humble this john the baptist now he's so humble and we know in john's gospel john the baptist says this he says i'm not the christ i am not the christ and in fact I've got to decrease so that he can what? Do you remember that? Increase. He's so humble. I've got to decrease so this one now, this Jesus Christ can increase. Here's this wildly popular prophet. If anybody could have got a cult of personality going, it was probably John the Baptist. They're out there. He's baptizing hundreds and thousands with this outward baptism of repentance, which would have been strange to them. Would have been kind of a new thing. The need to repent again and challenging God's people and preparing them for Jesus. And his message, look at verse 7, jump down. He says, He preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie. He says, You haven't seen anything yet. He's he's the one who's coming. He's the one who's mighty. I'm not even unworthy or worthy to untie his shoe. And in fact, I'm just washing you with some water on the outside, but he's going to come and he's going to drench you with the Spirit from the inside. That's what he's saying. He's pointing to somebody and something and a new work greater than himself. And he had all these people there that could have served him and his purpose. But what we see is that John the Baptist becomes a servant. How's that possible? How is he so humble? So other-oriented? And Here's the question for us today we're going to answer. How can you and I be too? How can we be so other-oriented that our lives are lived as servants for the sake of the Gospel? For the sake of of Jesus Christ. We're going to find that answer today. We'll see it in the heart of the Trinity in a minute. The heart of the Trinity in service. Well, that's his identity. Let's take a look. Let's move now to God identifying and commissioning His Son. As John the Baptist lays out this identity of this One who is King and Messiah and Servant all wrapped in one. Let's take a look at God as He identifies and commissions His own Son. We pick it up in verse 9. So Jesus comes. He arrives. And John protests. John the Baptist in Matthew's account. You know, you need to baptize me, Jesus. We don't get that here. But we do in Matthew's account. You need to baptize me, Jesus. But John yields as Jesus says, you know, you must do it to fulfill all righteousness. It was the commissioning. It was the start. It was the beginning. The start of Jesus Christ's saving work. That's what John had to get going. So, John was going to inaugurate. It was this commissioning. His ministry would begin now, at that moment. So, John had to do it. It's pretty important, isn't it? It's where it started, it's where it began. And so, John baptizes him. He yields to his Lord, and he baptizes him. And remember how I said Mark began his gospel pointing us to God's work in creation, the beginning. The beginning. In Genesis 1 1, in the beginning God created. He's also preparing us by doing that for the Trinity to show up at Jesus' baptism. So we're going to talk about that for a minute. The Trinity in this commissioning. The triune God who shows up here now too as he shows up in even the beginning of Genesis. We know God the Father created through the Word his Son. Scripture is clear that God created, the Father created through the Son as an agent. He did this. But what's kind of interesting, as we know the Father and Son were both active in creation, but did you know the Holy Spirit was present even then? Even at creation? The Holy Spirit, the triune God, was working. Take a look, Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, And the Spirit of God was hovering. It's mysterious. Hovering over the face of the waters. So the Spirit was active too. In creation now. In some mysterious, hovering, kind of powerful way. It's the only other place in really the Bible where the Spirit shows up like a dove the Old Testament uh, Aramaic version actually translates this verse, he hovered like a dove. He hovered like a dove. Well, did you catch that? That here too in Mark, the Trinity shows up and the Spirit is like a dove. Like a dove. What's Mark telling us? As God was active, dynamic, as one God in three persons in creation, so too now he's going to be active and dynamic as one God in three persons in saving. That's what Mark's saying. We've got a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Why does this matter? Why was Mark pointing us to this? How does it connect to John the Baptist being so selfless here? and maybe us too growing as servants. The Trinity is about as complex a truth as we can try to explain. Put it in a nutshell, it's that one God has always existed. One God now in essence. And yet, He's always existed in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. And they're relational. They're relational. Think about this for a minute. The God of Islam, and even the God of the uh, the Hebrew Bible, the God of the Jews, or the God of Islam, cannot have existed from eternity in a loving relationship. Why? Because he's one God in one person. But Christianity is unique. One God in three persons. And that's that's why love and mercy are not at the heart of Islam. Theology matters. That is why love and mercy are not at the heart of Islam because it's one God in one person, not one God in three persons. And so what that means is, if God is one God in one person, he had no relationship until he created people. Think about that. He had no relationship until he created people. But when you look at the Christian triune God, we get to see that God is always existed and always existed in relationship of three persons father son and spirit god has always existed in the perfect community amongst himself father son and spirit have you ever thought about the trinity that way that it it matters it it matters if you believe it one god and one person it affects that's how why islam looks like it does but we've got a god in, in christianity That has existed as one God in three persons. And we see that at Jesus' baptism, where the servant is commissioned, the son who is a king, the servant who is son and king. We're going to see that in just a moment. I think it's the next point in your outline there. The servant who is son and king. There it is. As you fill that in, I want you after, as soon as you're done with that, take a look again. Let's look at the words in your Bible. Jesus comes up out of the water and God showers Him. Jesus now, the Son, comes up out of the water and God showers Him in love. This is the triune God. Showers Him in love. My loving Son, I am so pleased with You. He's quoting Psalm 2 there. Honoring Jesus with the words of Psalm 2, which is a a kingly psalm. He's saying, not only are You servant, but You are king and I love You. The Father's saying that to the Son. You're King. I love you. And you're my Son. And then what do we see? The Spirit humbly comes down to the Son to anoint Him with power. And in a minute, He's got to push Him out into the world. Push Him out into ministry, the Spirit does. Father, Son, and Spirit. You know what they're doing there? They're all actively serving one another. It's amazing. At Jesus' baptism, as at creation, they're all actively serving one another. This is God now. Here's what Mark's doing. He's giving us a glimpse into the heart, very heart of God. Right into the center of God. And what we see when we look there is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have been serving God loving and glorifying one another from eternity to creation to now to redemption. That's what Mark's doing. It means they have shared in perfect joy and perfect harmony and perfect enjoyment and beauty and loving relationship in the other of the Trinity forever. C.S. Lewis describes the Trinity. He says it's almost like a, a divine drama with these people father son and spirit or he says it's almost like a dance as they work together a dance you know why he does that he describes it that way because he wants our imagination to get involved in this too and that's what mark wants that's what i want not just cold doctrine but let's get our imagination going as we think about who this god is that's easier for some of us than others isn't it maybe as we're wired or maybe a little more logical but when your imagination gets involved too, you know what it does? It stirs up your heart. And it causes worship and it causes transformation. So C.S. Lewis says it's like a drama or a dance. You know, most of us don't dance. I don't dance too much. <laughs> Maybe you do. I think it's even just personality. You can go to a wedding, right? Half of them are just like, yay! Everybody's out there and the half, other half are just kind of like, this is great. This is fun. So a dance really didn't work. So this week, I was, I was trying to rack my brain and just think about what does he mean by the Trinity when C.S. Lewis says it's a dance? And I had this image of a child staring at a fish tank and how they get enamored with a fish tank and watching maybe three fish, for the metaphor, three fish kind of darting around each other and you've seen fish and they swim and they look so free and fluid in the water and it's almost like they, they're not, they don't bump into each other, they're just kind of going all around. This is one of the images that popped into my mind. Or maybe you watched the Winter Olympics. You watched some of those um, ice skating couples, how they, they perfectly kind of and freely are going around. And, and you think one of those blades is going to like slice them across the head or something, but they don't. It's so perfectly choreographed, perfect harmony, perfectly working together. The Trinity has been doing this forever. Working in perfect harmony. Perfect synchronization, you might say. And you know what they've been doing the whole time? Serving each other. Serving and loving each other in loving cooperation. Here's how this one theologian puts it for us. Alvin Plantinga is his name. Kind of a weird name. He says, the persons within God, that's Father, Son, and Spirit, they exalt each other. They commune with each other. And they defer to one another. Each divine person now, Father, Son, and Spirit, harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement, there's that dance. Each person envelops and circles the others. God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. God is other oriented from eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And if you're not sure what that looks like, kind of a heady kind of quote there, you're not sure what that looks like, wasn't Jesus always centered on the Father? Think about his life. Father, let me do your will. Father, let me obey you. Father, what do you want? Father, let me follow you. This is the the second person of the Trinity. He's serving and centered on others, not himself. And when you and I are captured by this beauty of God serving in the Trinity, we too want to humbly serve just for the sake of of serving God, not to get something out of it. You know, when we serve others, as we're talking about the theme of service in this whole gospel, when we serve others or or even at church to get something out of it, that's not actually serving, is it? It's not actually serving. It's, it's serving others to really serve yourself, isn't it? Serving others to serve. Yourself, Whether it's reputation or a feeling of accomplishment or just to not be looked down upon because you're not doing anything or to feel that you kind of put other people in your back pocket by serving or maybe God, that's actually not serving. That's sort of remaining static and letting everybody else revolve around you. Even in service, we can do that. It's remaining self-centered even in the midst of service. Everyone else revolves around you. I'm not moving even if it looks like I am. I'm right there static in the center of my world. And even those of us who struggle at times to say no. Some of us end up in the church serving a lot because we struggle at saying no. Or maybe we get taken advantage of for being unable to say no. I fall into that category sometimes. I have trouble saying no. And sometimes those that have trouble saying no can look actually like the greatest servants amongst the people. And even in those cases, sometimes our saying yes is just because we are afraid of saying no. And that too is not really serving others. It's serving your own fear. or Serving your self. By serving others. Serving others as Jesus did, as John the Baptist did, is unconditional. It's not with us at the center. Not because we get something out of it at all or want to maintain something like a reputation they made out of fear. It's not at all that. True service comes by just serving because we love them. Because we love. Do you know, we used to think this, and they're going to look back on some of our beliefs someday and go, how could they ever believe that? There's going to be some of those. Every generation looks back and goes, how could they believe that? We used to think that the center of the universe was, you know, the earth. That the earth was the center of the universe. The earth was the stationary piece. The earth was there. It was stationary at the center. And everything else revolved around the earth until this guy came along. You know his name? Anybody know it? Yeah, I heard of there. Copernicus, yeah. Until this guy Copernicus came along. And that wasn't until the 1500s. So for a long time, we kind of thought earth was center, earth was stationary, and everything else revolved around earth and the humans around us. Until Copernicus came along and he said, hey guys, I think actually the sun is the center. And he got in some big trouble for that. But he took us to this sun-centered model took the humans right out of the center of it and they called it something called the Copernican Revolution. It was a big deal. You know, each and every one of us needs to examine how do I live? Do I live as the center of my universe? I don't budge. Everything else kind of revolves around me. Maybe even in serving, I'm really doing it to serve me? You and I, we need a Copernican revolution, but of our hearts. We need a Copernican revolution, but of our hearts. To take ourselves out of the center and put the sun in the middle. Not the S-U-N. But you might say the S-O-N. Putting Christ at the center. To put at the center of our hearts that loving, that humble, that serving triune God. Take ourselves and put Him there. And that's His purpose, really. The purpose here in Mark is to bring us into the Trinity and make us servants too. That's the purpose. To bring us in and make us servants. And that's what Jesus is beginning here and God's purpose in Mark. To bring us in and make us servants too. You know, if this God who we see at Jesus' baptism is the God who made the world in selfless love now, Father, Son, and Spirit, then that is what reality is all about. That is reality. That's what life is all about. Loving service. Because that's who God is at His very heart. Father, Son, and Spirit. He's been serving Himself amongst the Trinity forever. That's what reality is. Loving service. And then God inviting us into that as His creatures. Coming into that. He already had perfect joy. He's already had perfect joy and love in the Trinity for eternity. He didn't need to create us to get that. He created us to share it. That's why we're here. He created us to share that love with us. But we have a problem, don't we? We have a problem. There's a battle waging inside of each and every one of us. Inside you. There's a battle in your heart. There's a battle waging every day. And many times I feel like I'll almost stop at nothing to kind of keep my old view of the solar system. Myself at the center. Static. Unmovable. And everything else in my life is just going to kind of rotate around me. And my wants and my desires. You know what the bigger problem is? I can't displace myself from the center. As bad as I want to, as bad as I want to take myself and have a Copernican revolution, I can't accomplish it myself. But you know what's so beautiful? That battle, that war, is begun and finished by Jesus. That's what we finish today. Jesus begins the battle here today. The Copernican revolution starts right here in our passage. It's the very tail end, and Mark doesn't talk about it too much. Jesus begins the battle. The battle for your heart. The battle for your soul. The battle for your life to take us out of the center and put Himself there. He's baptized. He comes up. The Spirit comes down. Jesus comes up out of the water. Spirit comes down, and the Spirit immediately pushes Him out into the wilderness pushes him out, drives Jesus out. You know what the wilderness is? It's the battlefield. He drives Jesus out into the battlefield to go to war for us. Look at verses 12-13. The Spirit, now, we got the Trinity again. The Spirit immediately, there's that word, drove him out into the wilderness. Jesus goes out from the camp. And he was in the wilderness 40 days. Being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Do you remember the beginning, the beginning of this passage? The beginning. Trinity creates. Father creates through the Son. Spirit hovers over the waters. What's the next thing that happens in Genesis? What's the next thing? Satan comes and tests humanity, and Adam fails. Do you see the parallel? We get now here to the New Testament. Father, Son and Spirit are active in Jesus' baptism, and he heads out to succeed where Adam failed out into the wilderness to be tested by Satan. Do you see the parallel? God working. And as the other gospel accounts tell us, what was Satan's tempting? Well only of Adam and Eve too. Take God out of the center of your universe and put yourself there. It's exactly what Satan tempts Jesus with. Hey, take your father and his mission and take all that stuff out of the center. Get the power for yourself. Make bread for yourself. Call down angels to save you. Hey, you know what? I'll even give you back the world. You can just have it. See, he's got the same temptation from Adam all the way up to Jesus. He's tempting them with the same thing. Read it later today as you look at uh, any other accounts of Satan's tempting of Jesus. And Adam failed. But Jesus did not. He did not. Look at Matthew 4.10. Be gone, Satan, he said. Get out of here, for it is written, who's at the center of my life? Not me, the Word of God. You shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. The Trinity serving right there. He says, Satan, get out of here. The center of my life is the Father and always will be the Father and the Spirit and I will serve Him. He began the battle for you and I right there. He went out in the wilderness just like the Israelites did. Out into the wilderness. All these, they're, they're meant to be there. He goes out into the wilderness. He began the battle for you and I. And what this table does today, this table shows that Jesus took the battle all the way to another tree not the tree in adam's garden but the tree of a cross that's what this table is this is what it would take to win the ultimate battle you see it right here to bring you and i into the heart of the triune god this is what it would take this battle right here this table He would go all the way to the end of the battle for you and I. Do you wonder, why did Jesus get baptized? Why did he get baptized? Did he need a baptism of repentance? No, he didn't. He was starting the battle. And he wanted to identify with the ones that he went to battle for. So he says, I'll get baptized too. I'm identifying with them all the way from my baptism to the cross. They are mine. And I will win this battle for them. That's what we have. It's beautiful. Absolutely. In one little passage of Mark for us today. So, what I want us to do is, I want us to take some time and I want you to think about that as you come to this table again, as you come to see the warrior who went ahead of you, not only to a tree in a garden, but to a cross and won this battle for you. And that God has been working on your behalf for forever. And He wants to invite you in. This table's an inviting in today. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't trusted Him yet, please do this for me. Let these elements pass today. God reserves these for those who are part of His family. And if you are part of His family, let's t- spend some time in contemplation, or everybody, as we come and, and look at our own lives and examine and repent to the Lord again in our hearts as our uh, servers be preparing now and come forward to serve. Let's take some time in quiet meditation.